Hi, welcome back to the Just Bikabaneta show, and we are going to continue listening and watching the January 6th insurrection one year later on PBS NewsHour. Presents 4.7 million views. Five months ago it was published. PBS, an American public broadcast service. And uh, so if you think it's f- fake news, go fuck yourself. <laughs> anyway, shout out to KAMP. University of Arizona Student Radio and KPYT, Pasquayaki Tribal Radio. Let's love on our tribal fam. Shout out to Tona Otham tribe as well. Tona, Tona Oth, the Oth, our Otham family. <laughs> awesome, get it? Awesome, the awesome Otham. Nice. Just uh, nice. That's pretty, my Otham family. Uh, the Otham Otham family. Awesome Otham family. Anyway, so let's get to it. And then, uh, yeah, I might go for bike rides. Maybe. Maybe, maybe not. Or uh, continue uh, cleaning up rent, yeah, and organizing my farm. My art farm and my therapy farm. My little slice of life. Uh, right now with a proposal to reform the way the Electoral College vote takes place. Why is that not an, an acceptable compromise? Because it's not a solution to the problem at hand, which is that right now in the United States of America, we need federal laws that guarantee the freedom and right of every American to have access to the ballot, to be able to vote. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act, the Freedom to Vote Act, address that issue. And those are the issues that are are present and that are imminent and that are really dispositive, frankly, of this moment in time in terms of whether we are going to fight for some of the most important pillars of a democracy, such as the freedom to vote and free and fair elections. So let us pass those two pieces of legislation and ensure through the federal law that all Americans have meaningful access to the polls. Three other things I want to ask you about, Madam Vice President. COVID is the first. Six (laughs) of the prominent public health advisors who were part of the Biden-Harris transition team have today gone public with a plea to the president to adopt an entirely new pandemic strategy geared to what they call the new normal of living with this virus indefinitely, trying to minimize the risk. First of all... What we know without any debate, and I think all of us agree, um, is that we have tools available to us to address this pandemic in a way that we can at the very least mitigate the harm to the greatest number of people. And so we are going to continue as an administration to urge all people who are eligible to get vaccinated, to get the booster, to wear masks when they are in public, and and to do what is necessary for us to get beyond this. We welcome, of course, any um, anyone who has um, information, especially those who are experts, about how we can accomplish these goals. But there are certain things that are without debate and, and really not even necessary for discussion at this point among people who are knowledgeable about what needs to happen in terms of vaccines and boosters and masks. But is it time for a new approach is the question. I mean, th- this administration came in promising to get things on track. Here we are a year later. We're in the fourth wave. There aren't enough tests, nearly enough. We know that the approach in terms of vaccines 
boosters and masks work. So I don't think that that's what we're discussing right now. Um, But let's also talk about, to your point, where we are today versus a year ago. Today, the vast majority of schools are open. Today, we have a vaccine that the majority of Americans have actually received. Boosters, we are seeing great progress with that. People are wearing their masks. So we have seen progress. We are seeing businesses reopen. And I think it's important for us to to, to see in this moment we're still. It is extremely frustrating. There's no question for all of us. But we also must acknowledge that there has been progress and that that is the trajectory. But there are still um, steps to go. We have still work to do, and in particular around the vaccines and and masks. We want to make sure. dramatic hit. Did you try to do too much? Well, I think that there there are many um, metrics by which we can measure where we are today. One of them, again, is is where we are on COVID, which we just discussed. Um, Let's also look at where we are on the economy. Last year, we created 6 million new jobs. Last year, we brought unemployment down to, I believe it was 4.2%, which the economists um, most didn't believe would happen until at least 2023, 2024. So we have seen great progress. We passed an infrastructure law. Uh, people have been, uh, uh, both parties as administrations have been talking about doing for generations. There has been great progress, no doubt. You know, COVID, for example, I mean, we're all, you know, everybody's frustrated with that. And I understand and I fully appreciate there is a level of of malaise. Why didn't you talk about We're in two years into this thing. A year and a half ago. You know, people are, we want to get back to normal. We all do. Uh, But. Um, and be, you know, I, I can't tell you when I've been able to, to get out of D.C. and be with the folks who are actually informing our policies and will be impacted by our Ridiculous. policies. Ridiculous. I do hope that this year I will be able Ridiculous. to get out there more. I know the president feels the same way so that we can make sure that we are um, we are with the folks and not just, um, frankly, you know, hanging out in D.C. with the pundits. <laughs> Madam Vice President Kamala Harris, thank you very much for joining Don't us today. The problem, we appreciate it. Part of the solution, Good to be with you. Thank you. Happy New Year. To help us understand the broader effects that January 6th is having on our politics, our culture, and democracy itself, and consider where we go from here, I spoke yesterday with four writers who spent the last year engaged in this conversation. 
George Packer is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He has written extensively about the country's political divisions. Jelani Cobb covers race and politics at The New Yorker and is a professor of journalism at Columbia University. Stuart Stevens is a former Republican strategist. He worked on many Republican campaigns, including for Mitt Romney in 2012, but has since written the book, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. And Gary Abernathy is a contributing columnist at the Washington Post. We welcome all four of you to the program. Thank you so much. Let me just lay down the basics. What words would you use, George Packer, to describe what happened on January 6th? And how much does it matter that we get to the bottom of it, that we hold those responsible accountable? At the time, I thought it was an insurrection, and I still do, directed... hit its target could have been fatal um but we died that's not how i that did miss but that found how to get the target next time and in the year since january 6th what we've seen is efforts by both national republicans and state legislatures uh, and major figures in the party to figure out how to use January 6th to make sure that next time it works and next time what didn't work for Donald Trump in overthrowing uh, the 2020 election and the Constitution last time is going to work next time. And that for that reason, I think a year later, I'm far more concerned even than I was when I was in a state of shock on January 6th, 2021. Gary Abernathy, what about you? How do you see what happened? Well, I think it was a very disturbing uh, day, Judy, one of the most disturbing and embarrassing things that I've ever seen. It makes me actually angry at Donald Trump because of someone who supported Trump, and frankly, I'm still glad he was president. But I think the event disqualifies him from uh, future office, not legally, but by in the hearts of people, they should say, we can't vote for this guy again. And it's because of what he didn't do, but as president of the United States, he should have done more to tamp down the emotions of that day, and he should be held politically responsible for not doing that. I think it's a stretch to say he's legally responsible for not doing that. And I think the worry for me is going too far the other way to try to really use this politically to to slam the Republican Party in a way legally that really is better adjudicated at the ballot box. Jelani Cobb, how much does it matter that we understand what happened on January 6th? I mean, it matters. It's crucial. I can't think of anything that's more important, in fact. Uh, you know, I agree with George. You know, if I were to use a single word here to describe what it was, I would say harbinger. Uh, because, you know, at the moment, you know, people thought uh, that this had been uh, averted and that the danger had passed. But uh, in reality, if we think about you know January 6th at the Capitol, uh, there was a convergence in a single place, and that building was overwhelmed it was uh, in you know, supposedly the most fortified, secure uh, city in the country in terms of federal presence. Uh, and that building was overwhelmed rather easily. What would have happened if we'd had brush a, a, a fires across the country? in the state legislatures, as we saw in Michigan.
guarantee that we won't wind up with a similar kind of situation in the future. Stu Stevens, you've heard what the others are saying. Uh, how how do you look on what happened? Um, I, I think what's important to wrap our minds around is that what happened on one six is just part of a larger um, effort here which is autocratic movement in America. And I think that it's a mistake just to isolate 1-6 as, okay, this one event, some people came there. Look what followed, these uh, coordinated effort to pass these uh, voting legislation to make it more difficult for people who don't vote Republican to vote. And, and George Packer, we heard Gary Abernathy say in so many words that uh, it, it would be wrong to overinterpret, overreact to what happened. What do you think about that? Uh, how can one uh, overreact to a, a mortal threat to American democracy? The, the first in my lifetime that, that, that actually seems to be uh, on a road toward making it um, impossible for the popular will to be respected at the ballot box. That's been the goal of all these bills passed or debated across leg uh, uh, legislatures in Georgia, in Arizona, in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, which are not just about restricting access to the ballot, but are about putting elections in the hands of reliable partisans so that next time around we'll have uh, states that claim that the election was somehow wrongly held and that it's thrown into the hands of a partisan legislature, which sends its own electors to Congress um, to choose the next president. That's exactly the strategy going on right now, and it's building on what the Republican Party learned from 1-6 and these events around it, which was you need the right people in the right offices to be making these decisions in order to seize power. They didn't have it last time. They're trying to get it next time. I can't possibly overestimate the seriousness of that. Gary Abernathy, uh, you're, you're hearing this. Uh, you're hearing uh, George and the others say it's 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 impossible not to take this seriously. I want to be clear. I'm, an, I'm on board with everyone who thinks January 6th was a horrible day for our country. I think it's right to remember it. I think it's right to to look back at it as, as a day that we should all be ashamed of and hope never repeats itself. But I think it's being used uh, politically in some cases to then you know, extrapolate those events and say, well, we can't have any election reform. We can't have any anything because it's all an effort to to make what happened on January 6th happen again. And the fact is, a lot of us would argue that our system actually worked on January 6th. None of these really? terrible things came to be because, you know, people like Mike Pence said, I can't go along with that. So there are degrees yeah, of differences but here, but but in some Everybody ways I think we're on the same page. We are not on the same page, that. Gary. And <laughs> the system did not work. If we think about uh, the the law enforcement officers, the Capitol police officers, who lost their lives, you know, Absolutely. those the, the officer who died on that day, Brian and the, those the who, who subsequently died who have left. Died. Uh, we can't gloss this over you know and, and make it seem as if it were uh, Florida in 2000, where there were a simple bit of electoral glitches that were resolved administratively.
means the majority of Republicans in this country don't believe we live in a democracy. They think that we live in an occupied country. And if you follow yeah, that to a, a logical conclusion, it means not only do they have a right to reinstate the rightful uh, president of the United States, some feel they have an obligation. And that's what they're going to teach their children. And if you go down that line of thinking, it justifies uh, terrible acts of violence and terrible acts of uh, legal authorities and legislatures to try to overturn the will of the people. Uh, we've never been here, at least not since 1860. George Packer, what about the future? How do, how do we keep this democracy strong with this deep division existing and this in our political body? I mean, the lesson that I've learned over the past iniquity. year is that democracy actually depends on a kind of reason obtaining among the electorate, people behaving in a at least a roughly rational way and not falling under the spell of conspiracy thinking and irrational yeah. uh, interpretations of events We're and the, the spell of an authoritarian demagogue like Donald Trump. But what's happened is one of our two major parties has fallen into that. It really is simply a matter of each and every American citizen finding it in themselves. to take it into a direction that I think is dark and, and, and destructive and that I fear very much. Gary Abernathy, do you see from where you sit politically um, a, a way through this that keeps our democracy strong? Well, I, one thing Where's I constantly try to argue for is, Judy, we need to respect each other again. We need to respect each other's differences again. I don't care what polls you look at. If you no look way. at polls that say 40% no of Americans and 80% yeah, or 90% of Republicans yourself. think that the election was stolen, we can't suddenly just demonize and, yeah. and you know, minimize these people as the Americans that they are. We've got to work our way through this, talk our way through this, not, you know, not just divide into our media camps and our feeds that just reinforce what we believe. We've got to do a, a good job of continuing to communicate eventually. Truth wins out. Stu Stevens, do you see that as... I think that's a Anything. fantasy. Um, you, you can't negotiate with evil. How, how do you terrorist. negotiate with the person who's in the capital of the United States in a Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt? You don't want to meet those people halfway. You don't need to understand yeah. them. They're wrong. People who believe in democracy are right. The, the solution to this is pretty straightforward. You have to beat these Republicans. You have to have more days like January 5th last year where you elect Democrats in Georgia. Because the Democratic Party, which I spent 30 years pointing out flaws in, is the party that represents democracy in America now. And we have to just accept that and put these other differences aside. Well, it is a conversation we need to continue to have um, as the American people. And I want to thank all four of you for being part of this conversation today. Stu Stevens, Gary Abernathy, Jelani Cobb, George Packer, thank you so much. With the one-year anniversary of the Capitol insurrection, with a renewed push on voting rights, and with vaccine mandates getting their day in court, it has been a full week. To consider it all, we're joined by Brooks and Capehart, that is New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, columnist for The Washington Post. Very good to see both of you.
uh, even though you're not here in the studio. Was holding a Nothing will get done, of our democracy. Uh, comma, and statement. Democrats what, will what do we make of that? lose. It's a stunning statement, Judy. When Trumplicans, you know, the thing to keep in mind about President Biden is that he is running full force 2024, uh, comma, and turn us into a fascist Christian dictatorship, comma, unless you throw. American Trump and 147 plus Congress members in jail for insurrection, comma, in prison, comma, rather, comma, and do your fucking job. Oh, shit. President of the United States, with, to his mind, the clear and present danger. In that building was a travesty, and uh, and that he's going to do everything that he possibly can to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And the first step in that is talking about it, naming names, and trying to Talk hold them publicly true. accountable for what they for what they did. And David, what do you make of the of, of President Biden using this stark imagery? Hold a dagger. Yeah, I, I thought the president was right to not talk about Trump directly for most of this past year because there was the hope that Trump would fade away. And I must say on January 7th of last year, I thought what the events of January 6th were so horrific and so disgusting that it would be an inflection point and people would look at the whole Trump era as something lamentable and terrible. Uh, I was wrong about that. Uh, Donald Trump has not faded away. He's, if anything, stronger in the Republican Party. So if Donald Trump's not going to fade away, you might as well tell the truth. And you might as well go after him directly. And you might as well go after him with the passion of a man who worked for 30 years, more than 30 years in that building. And who mentioned yesterday that the rotunda where they were sitting, that's where Abraham... If the risk is in defending uh, American democracy, then there is a risk worth taking. And I think that the president, um, the speech yesterday was terrific. It was what the nation needed to hear. But it, it can't be the last step. It has to be the first step of many to remind people about what happened, 
who did it, and also to remind people that even though the focus right now is on Donald Trump, what Donald Trump unleashed will survive Donald Trump whether he runs for president or not. Which and that is the big danger that I think a lot of people are. To all 720. Um, might be getting themselves in. Criticizing Donald Trump is not exactly a new thing. It's not exactly a risky thing for Democrats. To take it down a notch to the class political level, the Democrats are going to try to win, to keep that their majorities in 2022. Joe Biden presumably is going to try to keep the presidency or at least have a Democrat in the presidency in 2024. His approval ratings are not high enough to do that on the basis of his own accomplishments. And frankly, he didn't win the presidency the first time because people love Joe Biden, that he won it because people really dislike Donald Trump. Yeah. And so raising the saliency of Trump uh, is uh, is probably the smart thing to do. Now, Walking there are clear America, limits to that, as we learned in the Virginia definitely. gubernatorial race, uh, when uh, the Democrats tried to tie Youngkin to Trump, and it didn't work. So I don't think it's the only thing he can do to keep Democrats in office, but it's certainly a, a key part of it. Well, one of the things we're seeing the president and the vice president do, they're heading to Atlanta, Jonathan, uh, next week to make what they're calling major speech or statement on on voting rights, uh, a big push for legislation that they have not been able uh, to get through Congress. Meantime, some yeah, Republicans, and I know you all talked about this a little bit there. last week, but um, meantime, Republicans are coming back and saying, well, let's look at electoral uh, vote count reform. Uh, I asked uh, Vice President Harris about that. And those are the issues that are, are present and that are imminent. Now, Jonathan, she's saying uh, voting rights has to come before anything with ele the electoral vote count. Um, well, because as she was saying, that what is happening in the states um, is happening because of the big lie, suppressing the vote, uh, keeping people from voting. And also now the prospect of once people have voted, boards of elections that have now been um, taken over by state legislatures having their votes tossed out. So that's why there's such this, this, there's this big push for the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to be passed, for the Freedom to Vote Act to be passed. But I also think in, in the in your interview with the vice president, I, I think she goes on to say that it's not. of the January 6th Select Committee um, writes in his, his new book, Unthinkable, about how they saw months, by May of 2020, that the Electoral Count Act was probably the way that Donald Trump was going to try to mess with the election because it was so squishy. So the Electoral Count Act, must it, it must be reformed, but 
Doing that instead of passing the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act or the Freedom to Vote Act, that's not a solution to the the near-term uh, danger that uh, faces uh, the right to vote right now. How do you, David, how do you see movement on, on these two things or not? Well, I think we probably need to do both, but I really do think the Democrats have to completely revamp their approach to the national emergency January 6th started, or Donald Trump started and is continuing expanding right to this day. There are sort of three elements to an election. There's casting the votes, there's counting the votes, and then there's certifying the results. We do not have a crisis in casting the votes. We just, in 2020, had the highest vote turnout in American history. We don't have at all a problem in counting the votes. We counted the votes without fraud and without error pretty much in 2020, as we've seen. We have a complete crisis in the certification of the votes. It's that third thing where we have the complete crisis where state legislatures are politicizing uh, the vote certification, where they're attacking the, the people who bravely stood up to Donald Trump, where Republicans are running for these local judge clerk, judge uh, of elections positions, Republicans who are Trumpy and presumably use them for nefarious ends. And so we have this massive assault on our democracy in the certification of the results. The problem with the Freedom to Vote Act is it has very little about that. It's all about elements one and two. And so to me, what the Democrats need to do is really focus on the certification, protecting the people who are nonpartisan and certifying results. The Democrats need to get much more active locally on these local races for, for judge of elections and other, all those other things. And they're not doing that. The Republicans are far outpacing them on the ground and on the grassroots. And so me, that's, that, the House is on fire on that. And so we should be focusing on that and get take care of that immediately. And then we can do the other voting rights, which are very hard to pass. Uh, we can do it now or we can do it later. But we need to focus on that third day. Jonathan, what about that? Uh, I agree with David that the house is on fire, um, but I don't agree with David. And David mentions this, uh, has mentioned this at least three times about how there's no, you know, the, the vote is not being suppressed. I, you know, there, there are a lot of, uh, of Democratic and progressive activists and actual voters who would, disagree, would disagree with that, especially those who are standing in line for hours and hours in multiple locations, multiple states in order to vote. But look, all of these things that we are we are talking about need to be addressed. The only problem is we don't live in a monarchy and we don't live um, in a dictatorship where you know President Biden, King Biden, dictator Biden can just go and say this shall be done. What the Senate needs to do is to is to take action to ensure that whoever wants to register to vote can vote, that the person who registers to vote is able to vote as conveniently as possible. And then when that person does vote, that their vote actually gets counted and that their voice is actually heard by not having a state board uh, overturn the voice of the people, the will of the people at the ballot box. That has to be done, and that can only be done at this point if the United States Senate rallies around and gets it done. But unfortunately, we spend a lot of our time talking about two senators, one in particular, who yeah. still, even though the House is on fire, is refusing to be a part of the solution to put the fire out. Uh, David, put the button on this. Uh, why isn't that the priority? You've got 30 seconds. <laughs> 
I don't think the problem, the answer is in Washington. Democrats need to rally people in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, in state capitals around the country. They need to work on state legislators. They may need to make it extremely painful for anybody to vote to politicize the certification of results. I think the focus on Washington is the wrong focus right now. And the Republicans know this. And they're doing something about it. And Democrats are not. Clarion call from each one of you, David Brooks and Jonathan K. Park. Thank you both on this Friday night. Thank you so much. Thanks, Judy. Thank you, Judy. We return to some familiar faces, our own NewsHour correspondents who were on duty covering the events of January 6th. Lisa Desjardins, who was inside the Capitol. Amna Nawaz, who was outside the building as the crowd gathered. And Yamish Alcindor, who was at the White House. The four of us spoke last year and the days following the insurrection for our podcast, America Interrupted. And when we came together again earlier this week, we talked about how the country has changed in the years since. Lisa, let me start with you. You were inside the Capitol. I remember it vividly as the rioters broke through the glass in those doors. You were eyewitness to the worst attack on the U.S. Capitol in 200 years. From a political standpoint, Lisa, it it looks like a much more partisan uh, place. What does it feel like from the inside? I didn't think that the Capitol could get more partisan than after the 2020 election ended in 2020. But it has. And, and I also have to say, you know, a year ago, we all felt these palpable, very raw emotions from lawmakers right after January 6th. And I knew they would continue. I thought they would continue February, March, April, Democrats just seething with anger. Democrats who don't usually express this kind of anger were saying things like this to me, that they couldn't look at Republicans, couldn't even get in an elevator with some of the Republicans who had objected to the election. I was sure that that would wane by the end of the summer. And I have to say, it really didn't. It continued through the fall. Um, As we saw some Republicans increase their rhetoric on the other side, I will say just this one holiday break, this this past holiday break, I have sensed in my phone calls with lawmakers, finally a little bit of breathing and a little bit of relaxing of that anger, but I just don't know what's going to happen when they return to Washington. Interesting. And and Yamish, you were at the White House, you were on the lawn as all this was unfolding at the Capitol. You were trying to stay in contact with then Trump administration officials on the inside. How has our understanding of what then-President Trump was doing during all this, how has that evolved and changed over the last year? Judy, I do remember standing on the White House lawn and watching people break into the U.S. Capitol. The president was watching it all unfold on TV like so many other Americans, and he was in some ways both enjoying the idea that his supporters had taken his lie about the election being stolen so seriously that they were breaking into the Capitol to sort of defend his line, his his, his idea of what should be happening in this moment. But he was also in some ways fearful because there was real violence happening. The president's lie has metastasized. It's thrown all across the GOP. And now you have GOP lawmakers, elected officials who at first were outraged, who at first were telling me that the president had gone too far. They've now all sort of fallen in line. So the president, former president, has continued to lie about the election, continued to say that the election was stolen. And and his power that seemed to be teetering, that seemed to be almost coming to an end on January 6th, it's only grown and grown. And then, Amna, you were outside the Capitol. You were talking to the protesters and others uh, outside, watching as all this 
unfolded. Recollect for us some of the language you were hearing from them and talk about how that's evolved in the, in the years since. You know, Judy, in terms of everyone we talked to outside that day, there was one thing everyone had in common, and that was that they believed the election lie. They believed that the election had been stolen. Not in terms of rhetoric, it was really a mishmash. I mean, there were conspiracy theorists out there waving QAnon flags. There were anti-vaxxers and COVID deniers who harassed me and our team for wearing masks out there. Uh, there were far-right extremists. There were white nationalists, white supremacists openly wearing the insignias of these groups and, and walking around. And it was this overlapping, this sort of toxic brew of ideological beliefs and personal grievances that really caught a lot of people by surprise and caught a lot of national security and counterterrorism experts by surprise at, at the time, too. They hadn't seen it before. Well, how much has that changed in the years since? Not much, if anything, it's gotten worse. I mean, we know the potency of that election lie that millions of people still believe. We know where we are with anti-vaxxers and COVID deniers. And we also know where we are with the larger threat to the U.S. from some of those groups. Those blending of beliefs, experts say, is more volatile than ever. You know, the top two lethal threats, domestic threats to the U.S. today, are violent white supremacists and anti-government extremists. And those remain the top concerns for counterterrorism officials. And in terms of holding people accountable, we've seen over 700 people arrested, charged in connection with the assault on the Capitol. Um, Lisa, you have a firsthand connection with all of this. I, what is it, two of the people who were the Capitol have been sentenced in the last week or so. That's right. And you know, Judy, I didn't know that I was being followed until this summer when the Department of Justice contacted me and said, we see on video that two of the rioters followed you for a significant distance. Those two, uh, two men from Pennsylvania, were just sentenced this week and their attorneys were both asking that they be given no more than one day in jail. Uh, this is the first offense for both of them. Uh, neither of them harmed anyone when they were in their building. They did pick up some papers, some congressional papers at some point and put them down. And that is one of the things the judge said was serious. Uh, the judge did give them 30 days uh, in jail, which was a disappointment to their attorneys. But the judge said, it is not enough to say that you just wandered into the building or you didn't mean to be there or you wish you could have left or that you regret it. The judge was very strong and said this was an attack on our democracy yeah, and I cannot condone this kind of mob violence. Some of the language we heard you from showed these, up. these um, rioters that day, um, clearly there were racist uh, elements to it. Um, Yamish, What's we've talked over yeah. the past year Number about how yeah. that language yeah. has yeah. persisted yeah. and how it's played into what was already uh, a fraught uh, conflict in our, in our nation, across our nation, over, over racial justice. How do you see that coming together a year later? Well, a year later, the language that we saw used at this attack on the Capitol has sort of spread and deepened across our country. We've had seen really a, an evolving of, a, of the conversation on race where we saw, of course, the murder of George Floyd and the swelling of this idea that America really needed to be better when it came to not only policing that Americans, police but also the way that we talk about justice way. and race. And there's been a big backlash to that movement. And what we've seen really is that Thank January 6th um, was not the, the end of something, but it was really the beginning of this ugly phase. So we've really seen a lot of people, I think, twisting the idea of pushing 
pushing for racial equality in this country and making excuses, frankly, for the people who broke into the Capitol. And that yep. has been detrimental, I, I think, to our to our democracy. And that continues to be the case. And Amna, I want you to pick up on that because this this notion of how we use language uh, with racist overtones and, and just arguments over what word to use about what happened on January the 6th, the words to use, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's insurrection versus a coup, um, all of these things are have, have not only been, they've, they've filtered out into the public discourse, but they're things that journalists have had to think about. That's absolutely right, Judy. I think it's important to point out that some of those forces that we confronted face to face that day um, on the Capitol grounds have always represented some of the biggest threats to people of color and to marginalized people in this country. And it was a mostly white crowd um, who had openly talked about bringing violence to the Capitol that day, who authorities did not see as a threat, who felt entitled to storm a federal property and try to overturn a democratic process because they were angry. And I think we've all done this long enough to know what that response would have been if that had been a crowd of all black people or all brown people or all Muslim people or all immigrants. And this kind of organized eruption really laid bare um, what so many of us have long known and lived, which is that white anger is seen differently here. I want to close by asking each one of you uh, to think about what stays with you. What sticks in your mind as you go back and you think about that day? Lisa? I think one that stays with me, this is going to sound so corny, there are two things. It's just the walking away from the Capitol that night. It, you know, we were there till three, four in the morning. One year I later. Think I just had, it was just, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful place. And I, I really, walking away from the Capitol that night, looking at it, I just remember that feeling um, of faith in our Constitution um, and in that building. And one more thing, someone loaned me a phone charger at a critical moment, and that is something I will always hold on to. It is my lucky phone charger. And Yamish, for you, what, what memory stays most with you? The memory that sticks most with me um, watching the Capitol being attacked is that sense of entitlement that these white protesters had to break in. And I kept picturing what it might have been like had these people been the protesters that I covered so closely in Ferguson, the black people that were demanding justice and police accountability. It's very easy to see those people being shot, frankly, dead on the steps of the Capitol if they were black or brown or immigrants. Um, and to see some of the some of the white protesters walk away with their lives, I think it's something that sticks with Most, me because to me it taught a lesson of who Ashley. could be outraged, who could break into the Capitol you, and take Ashley. their lives, and who are the people who, if they stand peacefully on a street and demand justice, they might die just for asking peacefully for respect. Ashley Babbitt. And finally, Amna, what what stays with you? Judy, as you know, I spent years as a war correspondent, a conflict reporter overseas, parachuting in and out of places where, quite frankly, scenes like this were expected. Um, And I said on the day, and it is still true, that I never expected to see that scene unfold in my own home country, but also on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. And I think what last year has shown me is that um, while America is absolutely unique, 
as a nation with its democracy, it is not immune from a lot of those same forces that can wear away and tear away and and eat away at foundational parts of our democracy. And that includes journalism, right? A A free and fair press. So I think what I carry with me, what sticks with me is really just this the sense of duty to continue to not just report on everything we see and to bear witness, um, but also to remind people about what's at stake. Well, the three of you were absolutely essential uh, to the news hours reporting on that historic, tragic and historic day in, in America. So we cannot thank you enough for what you did on that day and the reporting ever since and, of course, right up until right now. So I want to thank you, Lisa Desjardins, Amna Navaz, and Yamiche Alcindor. This is your last uh, program as a NewsHour correspondent, White House correspondent. You are leaving us to go on to NBC News. We wish you the very best. We're going to miss you. You've contributed so much uh, to the work uh, of this program. Uh, but we will miss you, and we thank you. She All three. Thank, thank you so much, Judy. It's been an honor to, to, to work and report with you and so many others on this program. Thank you. Thank you all. One year ago, supporters of President Donald Trump breached the United States Capitol building in an attempt to disrupt the democratic process. Lawmakers, staffers, maintenance workers, Capitol Police officers, and many others feared for their lives as insurrectionists trampled barriers, shattered windows, and broke into the Capitol. And as a predominantly white crowd shouted racist epithets and threatened lawmakers, there was a particular concern that people of color would be targeted by the violence. I spoke with representatives Sheila Jackson Lee, Grace Ming, and Norma Torres, all congresswomen of color who were trapped in the Capitol that day. I want to start off by asking you, where were you on January 6th, 2021? What happened and and how did you navigate that? We were looking forward to... Um, watching democracy, you know, uh, unfold as we began to uh, go through, you know, this process of certifying um, the election results that had already been certified by all states. Um, So, you know, it it started as... um, for me, getting those alerts, uh, those text alerts on my phone, um, I noticed that um, of my colleagues, not all of them were receiving those text alerts. So I was sharing um, that information with them, um, really going through the process of, you know, one building after another after another uh, being breached uh, by um, these rioters um, that were attacking us. And it got to a point um, where I thought, we're going to be here for a long time. I never imagined they would breach the the Capitol itself, but also um, the doors of the balcony where I was sitting, balcony number three. At one point, the door swung open, and it was an officer um, in plain clothes that had been shoved in. And he had been shoved in so hard that he almost lost his balance. Um, A cell phone was dropped. Um, Immediately, he shoved back. And I don't know what that was, that first um, exchange was. But I know that it was a violent exchange. Um, the, the doors were closed. 
um, logged. Then he came back and picked up a phone. And the members at this point were all watching the floor, hadn't really um, uh, What's going on there? understood what happened. So I heard a lot of loud noises. I wasn't exactly sure what was going on. The room that we were in had no windows. Um, and so what I did, which I later regretted, was turned on the television. Oh um, and I turned on the television and I saw images of people marching and banging things. And I realized by seeing the images that um, they were right outside of our room, um, <laughs> which made me more nervous because... The sounds were muffled, even though they were loud, so I didn't exactly know where they were, but seeing it on TV made me realize that they were right outside of our door. Um, so we started moving furniture and blockading the doors whatever way we could. Uh, at about the same time, I was texting with my staff the entire time because we didn't want to talk on the phone. I didn't want anyone to hear me from the outside. We had the TV on mute and I was texting with my staff and they said something about how people in the chamber, in the house chamber, had been instructed to put on their gas masks. So I looked around the room where we were in and couldn't find any gas masks. So we also prepared to um, to wet the curtains in the room. There were curtains on fake windows. They're not real windows. They're just like um, for decoration. And so we, we got these curtains and we were prepared to wet them because we were told that they could be used as a, as a good substitute uh, in case of tear gas being used. And then there was sounds like lock the doors, lock the doors, lock the doors. Uh, and it was a sound that one had never heard. Um, the last time that it happened, it was the 1950s, and uh, it was attacks inside the chamber by uh, individuals who were nationalists. But it had not happened in the last 50 to 70 years, at least, or at least between 50 and 70 years. And here we were being told to lock the doors and there was a matter of confusion. We began to, as members, look out for each other but embrace uh, the uh, call to get down, get down, get down. Uh, and literally we were crawling in order to make our way to an exit uh, that the uh, Capitol Police could assist us, still not knowing what was going on still uh, literally uh, grabbing our belongings until there was a point where I was uh, crawling and bending down uh, with a lot of scurrying going on, but bending down, checking on our colleagues in front of us, checking on them in uh, back of us. I just left things on the floor. I, I dropped a notebook and a shawl and things that would keep your hands occupied. I kept a phone uh, because as news was breaking, uh, the phone began ringing, uh, and uh, we we made it to a point of an exit, but we were still uh, couldn't move. It was not uh, safe enough, 
reporting to the Capitol Police for us to move. Uh, there was slight crying. Uh, I think I was astonished. Uh, I had been in the Capitol, actually in the Capitol, on 9-11. Again, I was actually in the Capitol. Hearing gunshots um, in the U.S. Capitol is not normal. Um, hearing tear gas being deployed and seeing the smoke rise isn't normal. Seeing a mob violently attacking officers, hitting them with a U.S. flag isn't normal. And every single person that statement. works in the U.S. Capitol um, has been impacted one way or another. People were shocked to see insurrectionists carrying the Confederate flag and shouting racial slurs at Capitol Police officers. And there are even photographs of some wearing shirts with anti-Semitic slogans on them. I'm curious to hear, how did your race and gender factor into your concerns for your own well-being that day? As a Latina, as a, you know, as a female of color, um, we knew that we were going to, at that moment, that we thought we were going to have to fight for our lives to get out of there. Um, yeah. And it, and as I looked around um, okay, no, and I saw these two brave the members uh, of Congress, you know, two females um, trying to stand at the door. Uh, Mickey was one of them. Sandberger was another, um, you know, getting themselves armed with um, a pen. We had pens. Those were our weapons, um, you know, that, that we had to prepare ourselves. But thinking about when those doors are open and this violent crowd walks in, who are they going to unleash their, you know, madness on first? Who would be the first that they grab? Um, how are we going to protect ourselves up here? I thought about that a lot because I was afraid that they would find me. And I was afraid that just based on how I Being looked, Latina. that they would assume that I was not, let's say, a fan of President Trump. And I was Which nervous totally how they would react assumption. if I did happen to encounter them. So my thinking at the time was just to do everything I could to avoid that situation from happening. Um, you know, we just turned off the lights, turned off the sound, muted our cell, uh, turned off the sound on our cell phones. Um, and still, you know, texting my staff, like asking the Capitol Police to come rescue us. Um, so, yeah, we were really nervous and just desperately hoping and waiting for the Capitol Police or someone to uh, help help us get out of there. But for a brief Nobody period cares. of time, I, I, I was worried that I wouldn't, you know, make it. We did not have all the exterior um, exhibitions of hatefulness that occurred that we saw after the fact. Um, I would only say that I viewed myself as an American and as a patriot. That's why I was there, to see America in her best, the transition of power. I think if I felt any extra danger, it was that the color of your skin always draws 
more angst and anger. And if there was a situation where we were fleeing and there were people chasing us, I might have had an intensity of fear for what they would do to me if I was captured. But I was equally concerned about my brothers and sisters who were there, who did not look like me. But in this instance, uh, the hurt was that these were Americans, domestic terrorists, insurrectionists attacking this democracy that belonged to all of us. And so it was only after when I knew and met the police officers, African-American in particular, who indicated the racial epithet that were thrown against them or towards them or was said to them. I bet that's and why then they the committed suicide. That was hanging uh, that was supposed to be for Vice President Pence, a noose has always been a terrorist weapon because it's always terrorized people. And uh, hanging is one of the most vile ways lynching. of dying. And terrorists, foreign terrorists, use hangings and beheadings because it's so vile. And so to have a noose hung out on the outward area of the United States Capitol, I don't know if history reflects whether there was ever a noose. Was anyone ever hung on the grounds of the United States Capitol? Well, they should be. And this noose certainly had to Apparently. be the first ugly sign of the stigma of race, hatefulness, racism, since January 6th, we've seen violent threats against other women lawmakers of color, you know, most notably Representative Boebert's message to Representative Omar and Representative Gosar's yeah, sharing a video of for. fantasies about the death of Representative Ocasio-Cortez. What Do instances like that make you question whether or not the right to feel safe while representing your constituents and and being in the people's house is equitably applied um nothing about being a member of congress um from different regions you know of the country is equitable um when you think about to me that it is okay for their member of Congress to attack somebody that looks like me simply because I look the way I look, simply because of the color of my skin. Um, and, and that's not acceptable. That is not the America, you know, that I grew up, you know, loving. Being an immigrant um, and, you know, thinking about the sacrifices of my parents sending me to the U.S. to escape the same type of violence that was brought upon the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. That is the political violence that my parents wanted, you know, so much for me to get away from. Little did I know that, you know, I would, you know, 
eventually have an opportunity to be a member of Congress, represent my community. My community, by the way, that is 70% Latino. Um, you know, I go there, you know, because, you know, they empower me to be there and I have to be able to do my job. Um, Anyway, thanks for tuning in. We're going to continue this uh, on another podcast. Three lawmakers of color on surviving January 6th. Very interesting. PBS NewsHour. Anyway, wear a mask in public indoor spaces. Go sign my move on petition. HTTPS colon slash slash bit.ly slash 3ka1mmd. And call Congress 202 224